his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear from a Pennsylvania organization that has concerns about the large number of school strikes in our state, a statistic that's particularly troublesome in Luzerne and Lackawanna counties. We'll get the thoughts of an author whose father was a prominent cancer researcher about natural approaches to the treatment of the illness. And we'll learn more about how processed foods are both bad and good for consumers in this day and age. Pennsylvania's Commonwealth Foundation tagged our state with a dubious distinction, teacher strike capital of America. According to the conservative group, the state has been impacted by 131 strikes since 1999. The group reports 300,000 students have been affected and 1,383 days of school have been missed while teachers walked picket lines. The Commonwealth Foundation also notes that analysis by the magazine Mother Jones determined that between 1968 and 2012, 90% of the nation's teacher strikes took place In Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth Foundation points out that strikes are disruptive and difficult for parents who have to scramble to find someone to watch younger children during labor disputes or pay for daycare. Our region leads the state in strikes when Luzerne and Lackawanna counties are combined. Lackawanna County's tally is 15 strikes. Luzerne County has notched 13 since 1999. The Commonwealth Foundation says that although labor unions are meant to work toward amicable solutions that arise, the history of the state's teachers' union tells a different story. We recently spoke to Nate Benefield, vice president and COO of the Commonwealth Foundation, about the school strike situation. A little bit surprised, not so much that we led the nation, uh, which uh, I think it's it's been known that Pennsylvania is, uh, has kind of been the uh, you know capital of, of teacher strikes in the country, um, but that we are so far ahead. In, in fact, have had more teacher strikes in in Pennsylvania than the rest of the nation combined over the last few decades. Uh, and that, uh, you know, just this dominant trend of, of this is, seems to be the place where most of the teacher strikes have happened. Now, uh, of course, in some states, they don't have them at all because they've done something smart, and that's ban them. Uh, Nate, what do you think would have to happen here for us to actually follow that path, uh, seeing the strength of, of some of the uh, union activity in Pennsylvania by the PSEA specifically? Yeah, it would. Be, it is that, you know, Pennsylvania is one of very few states that does not... Um, um, ban teacher strikes or has, has no penalties really for striking uh, amongst uh, teachers that other states um, have outlawed it or at least imposed fines uh, or lost pay uh, for striking. Uh, here it's almost encouraged and uh, it certainly is, uh, I think, would be a heavy lift uh, because the teachers union, the PSCA, has so much political clout. Um, they were uh, upset that the legislature uh, 
fact, last week had a, had a hearing on teacher strikes and the causes and possible solutions. Uh, the PSA was upset that they even had a hearing or even discussing this, uh, seeing this as, as an assault on their political power. And we had uh, people from the Dallas School District in our in our vicinity from Luzerne County at that hearing. Did you have the opportunity to, to attend it? Yeah, yeah. I was. I spoke uh, a little bit after after the folks from the, the Dallas School District who talked, you know, about the human element and what they were dealing with in, in that school district. And uh, I helped offer then kind of a little bit of the national perspective of, of what we've seen and why uh, why Pennsylvania tends to, to lead lead the nation. What did you find most uh, telling about the the testimony of the solicitor of uh, the Dallas School District who talked about their frustration over any teeth in the bargaining? That was, uh, I believe, what he talked about, right? Yeah, they they couldn't really get anywhere in, in the bargaining. Uh, the union seemed unwilling to really negotiate. Uh, and even when uh, they were testified that even when you know the Department of Education kind of ordered thing you know them to get back to work, uh, the union was just ig- ignoring. Um, ignoring the state and what the state was telling them and, and continues to, to fight and continues to have strike and is threatening a strike again. Uh, it seems to be an ongoing thing with, with no resolution in sight. Our uh, two counties where we do our, our broadcasting in mainly, Luzerne and Lackawanna County, actually, if you, you combine the two of them, we've had the, we've had the most in the state, Nate. And um, do you have any indication as to why we have so many where we live from uh, 1999 through now? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily know why that, that specifically, you know, why that region has has been such a, a big region. As I mentioned, that between Lackawanna and Luzerne, 28 strikes uh, since 1999. Um, partly it could just be competition. They say, hey, are, they're doing a strike nearby. Let's We can do the same thing, and it won't... Um, won't have any negative repercussions where in other parts of the state that's just not their, their culture. Um, a number of counties have had no no teacher strikes in that, that period. Um, it's kind of against their culture, and I guess somehow, in some way, shape, or form, it became part of the culture and that, that you're part of the state. Well, and I think this is why it may make it very difficult for lawmakers to embrace any change in Harrisburg because in a lot of the areas and counties in Pennsylvania, there are zero, right? And in other areas, there might be uh, one or two here and there. But uh, the the vast majority of Pennsylvania seems to uh, to avoid uh, labor unrest from teachers. So do you think that that's why lawmakers are not apt to do anything about this? You know, that that could be some of the reason, but certainly there was motivation to have a hearing, have discussion. Uh, I think there was, there is general agreement that teacher strikes are, are negative. I think everyone agrees that that is harmful to uh, students, disruptive of education, uh, it hurts parents, uh, and I think even lawmakers where they haven't had it in the, in the district um, are, are somewhat of shame that, that Pennsylvania has been the leader of the nation and, and would like to change that. Um, but again, it is it is a difficult political lift to, to take all that on and, and take on particularly the, the teachers' union, which has um, used their advantage to create so much political clout in, in the state capitol and, and preventing any types of, of reforms that would, would address that situation. And uh, certainly this, this kind of behavior is often... Um at least where we live, uh, Nate, because we've been watching them for years. These strikes come over what comes down to a stalemate sometimes about health care. I know the salaries are also part of it, but it just seems that health care is at the crux of this. Is there another way that states 
who uh, have well, teacher populations, and I guess that's all the states. Is there another way that we could do health care uh, on, a, on a more grand scale so that we wouldn't have to look at this patchwork landscape all the time of um, the haves and the have-nots? Because I think some teachers uh, want to protect the fact that they don't pay into health care. And, um, you know, another district also tries to hold the line on that as well. It seems to be a unity point with them. Yeah, that, that absolutely. Uh, so that is as one of the big big reasons for for strikes is, has not been about necessarily the salary, but uh, about healthcare benefits. Uh, in some cases, not even the amount of the benefits, um, but even who the provider is, and they would uh, fight o- over over that. Uh, and there there certainly can be addressing that. I mean, short of barring teacher strikes, of, of simply taking healthcare out of the bargaining negotiations. Um, one could be providing a statewide plan or statewide benefits package. Um, this is part of what Wisconsin did in their reforms a few years ago, is taking health care out of that, that bargaining uh, negotiation, either giving uh, giving the school districts just the power to, to choose a health care plan uh, or doing it at that statewide level like we do with pensions. Pensions are, are set by the state, uh, what that, that benefit is uh, for all teachers across the state. Uh, and we could certainly do the same for health care and, and avoid having strikes over, over that issue. Would that have to be done in a legislative manner? Yeah, that would have to be done legislatively. Uh, state legislature would have to pass uh, something to uh, pass legislation to create that and, and take take health care out, out of the bargaining, uh, off the bargaining table. Uh, how much of a desire does Harrisburg have to do that? You know, there, there had been some talk a few years ago of, of, of doing something to basically consolidate the plans because there are so many different health care plans and, and, and do one plan. Um, I, I certainly think as you were seeing teacher strikes happening now and being threatened now, um, that should be a, a greater discussion of, of taking that off off the table and, and really looking at other states that have adopted reforms uh, like this uh, that have uh, really led the way, and, and I would point to Wisconsin as, as a place where they really changed uh, the collective bargaining process and really limited collective bargaining to just salaries. So they are just negotiating salaries in this process and not all of these other provisions that can lead to an impasse. Have you looked at, at all? I know that in some other states in the country, Nate, they're having these uh, massive walkouts from teachers who believe that they are uh, unfairly compensated and they have to work extra jobs and so on and so forth. In, in your opinion, is Pennsylvania a good place to be a teacher? Well, in terms of, you know, comparison of, of salary and benefits, yeah, we are among the leaders in the nation in terms of teacher salaries, um, averaging more than 60000 for the for the average teacher. Now, that range is, is certainly, um, certainly a great range across the state in terms of each district, what they, there is, uh, and salaries are set at the, at the district level uh, as opposed to some states which do it at the state level. Uh, but certainly, yeah, we are uh, near the top in terms of teacher compensation and, and even higher when you adjust that for cost of living. So there's, there's um, well, there was a story about uh, out about people believing that teachers are underpaid. I would say in Pennsylvania, Nate, from the, the compensation that you just spoke about, I think that that is not true here. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, you can always have the question of what what is a fair pay, what's underpaid, overpaid. <clears throat> I do think, and, and we did some analysis of this a few years ago, that um, people tend to underestimate what the average teacher salary is, um, not realizing that it's over over 60000 uh, Now, you could argue that it, it should be more, but uh, I think having a good understanding of uh, of the, that salary and, and the benefits are important to, to the discussion that we, we have today. Especially in a state like Pennsylvania, where I, I don't think we have the greatest... Um, economic thriving here. I think we can do better in that regard. And I guess ultimately, Nate, we have to look at how this also 
perpetually falls into the lap of uh, property owners who pay school taxes. Right. Absolutely. That is, you know, ultimately a, a funding question. And you mentioned our economy being um, being stagnant. And, you know, one thing that is, I think, well, like in terms of the property tax discussion is that when you have um, districts that have been, been growing um, are not getting the, the share of state funding they should, and districts that have been shrinking have continued to get the same state funding because of a, uh, we have something in place called Hold Harmless, where every district uh, gets the same amount of money, regardless of uh, whether they lose students or gain students. Uh, that has been a, a, a greater burden on, on certain areas. Uh, I think your part of the state is one that has been, been growing and seeing student enrollments grow. Um, that has forced them to rely even more on, on the property tax than, than other parts of the state. Okay, so I, I think that that probably needs to be looked at. Does the Commonwealth have a foundation, or I'm sorry, you do have a foundation. Does the Commonwealth Foundation have a stance on a property tax reformation? Well, so uh, we have not taken a position on whether or not to, you know, to just do a tax shift. Um, our view has been that simply shifting from property tax to, you know, sales and income tax doesn't address some of the cost drivers in, in place that we need to address. Um, pension reform need to address some of the collective bargaining things that are driving up taxes, and and even in in, in school construction and, and debt uh, having prevailing wage mandates that drive that up, because uh, that has also been another huge cost driver in in schools, and that has gone up uh, a lot more quickly than than teacher pay and, and compensation in terms of our our costs of, of debt and, and construction payments. Anything else from this uh, report that you would like to talk about with us today before we let you go? Yeah, just that I think there are, are multiple solutions uh, to dealing with this, this problem of teacher strikes from, um, cre- you know, creating penalties like other states have uh, to taking uh, taking some of the collective bargaining terms uh, off of this and adding transparency to the process. And this is a thing that we have pushed is basically letting taxpayers and letting teachers see what is actually being negotiated and, and force contract proposals to be made public. Okay, now that's an interesting point. Usually in negotiations, we don't get to see that kind of stuff. What would be the uh, impetus for showing it? Well, basically, once you get a a contract in writing, now um, there's been legislation that would say, hey, once there's a proposed contract, to put that out there publicly. Um, so that, you know, I think a lot of times when you see these strikes happening, one side says, hey, we offered this. The other side says, no, they didn't. Uh, they're lying. <laughs> to actually put that out there, have it be seen, and have it be public, and even do some analysis of, of the costs and, and benefits of that contract. Is there a school district that you looked at, Nate, that uh, is, is functioning in a way that could be the model for some of the other school districts? Is, does some, is somebody getting this right somewhere? You know, that is a good question. We didn't really look into each district to see who is uh, is doing it right, but um, I, I think there probably is uh, some further analysis that should be done on that to see what are what are the best practices amongst school districts. That's Nate Benefield, Vice President and CEO of the Commonwealth Foundation. Their report is available at www.commonwealthfoundation.org. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The war on drugs is often referenced in the United States, but there's something else that's been the focus of another protracted attack in this country, cancer. In 1971, President Richard Nixon declared a war on cancer. Almost five decades have passed since that declaration, with hundreds of billions spent on the pursuit of treatment of the illness. 
many of us have had personal experience with cancer in some way or another, and author Sylvie Beljansky is no exception to that, although her story is unique. Her father was a biologist biochemist who spent years in a French laboratory working on cancer treatments, studying environmental impact on health, and looking at DNA replication as a possible answer. His research was in developing molecules that could block cancer cell replication without killing healthy cells. While many in the French government disparaged his work, he was consulted by French President François Mitterrand who was diagnosed with prostate cancer. This frustrated the president's political foes, according to Sylvie Beljansky. She joined us this week to discuss her new book, Winning the War on Cancer, The Epic Journey Towards a Natural Cure. Your family's story is of uh, science and discovery, although some parts of it have been a little bit difficult, right? Uh, that's uh, understatement of the century, but yes, <laughs> yes. My, my, my father was a PhD in molecular biology at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, and he was one of the you know pioneer in the research of cancer. He was one of the first scientists to look at environment as a cause and a solution uh, to cancer. When everything you know at the time was all about genetics and finding. Uh, genetic and uh, engineered drugs, uh, and he looked at nature for solutions, and uh, he really was at the forefront of what is known now as epidemiology, and he gave a scientific basis to uh, environmental medicine. But he he really created a lot of uh, enemies during his uh, lifetime because because that was not sitting well with the official line of thinking of the time. Yeah, we we hate to think, Sylvie, of uh, medicine and treatment as big business. How does that play into uh, the story of your dad? Well, uh, he developed some natural uh, products that, uh, you know, he tested and were, were very helpful to fight cancer. And uh, he got uh, num- the interest, he published everything, so he got the interest of a number of doctors back back in the 80s. And uh, in uh, in 92, in France, uh, the former French president, François Mitterrand, was diagnosed, officially diagnosed, with advanced prostate cancer. Uh, at uh, the surgeon uh, did the surgery and found out that uh, the cancer had spread everywhere, and he said that the, the president would not be able to finish his second term. Uh, terms were seven years at the time in France, so he still had five years to go, and the, the doctor said this said it's not going to happen. We should prepare for early elections. But it's a French story. So the, the, the Mitterrand had a mistress uh, who knew of a doctor who was had good results with my father's products. So that's how Mitterrand started to take the products. And uh, as we know, he was able to finish his second term. So that really changed the history of France. But after my, uh, Mitterrand finally passed, uh, passed away, uh, after the end of his second term, uh, there was a SWAT team uh, which was sent to um, 
dog destroying my father's laboratory. Uh, they went with uh, dogs, helicopters, machine guns, uh, they, um, and they destroyed everything. Uh, they, they really leveled the, the, the laboratory, and they arrested my father. They arrested my mother, who had been working for, for over 40 years in the lab with my father. They arrested scores of doctors, and they tried to, 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 dis, to, I mean, to make that absolutely disappear from, uh, from the face of Earth, like it never, never happened. I was a lawyer. I was working in a law firm at the time, uh, already in New York. And when I learned that, I, my first thing was, you know, how can I organize uh, my parents' legal defense? So uh, I, once, once I, I uh, accessed the legal file, I was stunned by what I found. Uh, I found that there was order to destroy every evidence. And that really startled me as, as a lawyer because evidence, I mean, justice is about conservation of evidence, not destruction of evidence. I said, this is really something wrong uh, here. I, I cannot let that uh, happen. Uh, that's why I decided to get more involved. And now we have a Beljansky Foundation here in New York, a non-for-profit, who is carrying on with, with the research uh, and making sure that, you know, that uh, this information, which can be life-saving, is doesn't disappear. Well, I'd like to know more about uh, the actual natural cures you're, you're looking at, Sylvie, because a lot of times we've known people who have undergone cancer treatment, and a lot of it seems very toxic, very poisonous. It seems that the treatment at, at points is more cruel than the disease can ever be. So what, what is the path that you're seeing that can be helpful? I, th I think it's, it is important to, um, to look at molecules that are more natural, less toxic, and more selective. This is not my, just my, my idea or my father's idea. In 2004, there was a uh, Fortune magazine uh, had a complete issue about cancer, and the cover of the, the, there was a question, why are we losing the war on cancer, and how we can, can win it? And they say, there was the article 2004 was saying that we need absolutely to rethink the way we are addressing the disease. As of now, you know, everything is driven by intellectual property. Uh, only a synthetic molecule which is new can be patented and therefore give a return on investment. But that may be, you know, good for, for return on investment. Does it mean it's good for our health? So we, we have to look somewhere else. Where is it going really to help us? And research shows that there are natural molecules out there cannot be patented because they are natural, are not going to become big business because there is not enough of it, but they can make a difference. And they can work by themselves. They can work in synergy with chemotherapy, so people don't have to choose. And they can work even when chemotherapy 
stops working, as fails the patient. So this is a vital information. Everything is published. Uh, the, the Belzhansky Foundation doesn't keep every, anything proprietary. Everything is on the website of uh, the Belzhansky Foundation at belzhansky.org. All those publications can be, can be downloaded. How are you being received by people in the medical community? I mean, is what you're saying actually being used in treatment right now? It is used by a number, I mean, those products are used by a number of holistic doctors who are looking to provide to the patient more than what is just given at the hospital, help them, you know, to, to succeed with their, with their treatment or to alleviate the side effects of, uh, of the chemotherapy. It is not uh, widely used in hospitals because, again, uh, it's not a drug and it's not a drug because it there is no way that something that cannot be patented will ever go the FDA route. I mean, there is not enough money for that, but it doesn't mean that it cannot make a difference for people. Okay. And what specifically are you talking about with, with some of these molecules? Well, what are they and how would people who are listening today and might be interested, how would they be able to find what you're talking about? Well, uh, I mean, there are a number of uh, of, uh, plant extracts, natural plant extracts uh, that, you know, with with barbarian Latin names uh, that, um, I I mean, like Pau Pereira, Rovolfia, Vomitoria, there is a golden extract of uh, Ginkgo biloba. if people are interested in learning more about the extracts and uh, the story behind them and the research uh, associated with them, uh, I just have a book, uh, Winning the War on Cancer, uh, which just uh, came out. Uh, the subtitle is The Epic Journey Towards a Natural Cure, and uh, it's available on, on my website, winningthewaroncancer.com. Uh, it's going also it's going to be uh, Available uh, starting May 5 on uh, Amazon. And there is the end. I wanted to share the message. I wanted to give this information to as many people as possible. So that's why I wrote that book, to, to, so people have all the resources and all the information. You talked about some environmental factors in the beginning of the interview. And I, I'm also wondering, Sylvie, I mean, we, we know a lot of people do get diagnosed with cancer. Is there some, some things that we can do to uh, avoid it in the first place? You did talk about environmental factors, but is there anything that we're doing that uh, makes us uh, somewhat predisposed to it? Well, we are living in a sea of, uh, of toxics. Uh, so really, it's really important to detoxify as much as possible. Uh, as, to a certain extent, our body is 
built with a detoxification system. Uh, it's our liver, our, our colon, our lungs. But uh, when it's too much, uh, too much uh, toxins to process, our body just giving up. What my father uh, really, uh, what's really started his research was studying the effect of environmental toxins on the, at the level of the DNA. And he discovered that there is a progressive and cumulative destabilization of the DNA uh, due to a lot of chemicals. And nowadays, uh, you find hundreds of chemicals in the blood of umbilical cords of babies. Babies nowadays are born with chemicals uh, in, in their blood in quantities, in quantities. And then when they grow up, uh, and they are, you know, subject to um, a lot of um, vaccinations that is, uh, comes too fast and too early, uh, on an immature, uh, immature uh, immune system, and they, they very often it's too much. It weakens them for, for life. Now the, we have a new, the new generation uh, as a lifespan, which is uh, less than uh, the older people, the baby boomers. We're going the wrong way, basically. Now, Sylvie, how does um, how does diet play into this? Somebody asked the question: uh, If it's true that cancer cannot live without sugar, if you cut sugar out of your diet, does that uh, stop cancer or slow it down? It is absolutely to understand, yes, that there are a number of basic things. I mean, that in in our food, which are uh, induce, help induce and fuel cancer. I mean, sugar is definitely uh, one of them. Trans fat, the bad oil, the bad fat, which is, you know, very often associated to fast food, is also uh, prone to inflammation and cancer. Uh, there are, there are uh, I mean, it's really important to eat organic. Uh, 80% of antibiotics uh, are used by agri- for agriculture meaning to cattle and things like that. So we eat all those um, antibiotics. There is a lot also of spraying of pesticides on, uh, on vegetables. We think that we are eating our greens. Actually, it's very often you know, covered with glyphosate from Monsanto. We, we, all that, you know, is carcinogenic. We need, absolutely need to learn to read the labels and avoid all, all those bad stuff. Well, it sounds like a, a lot of what you talk about can be done, too. I mean, that, that's the good part about it. And some of the things that you talked about come at, uh, at a reduced cost or no cost or, or, or things like that. So it seems that if we, we start to become aware of this, that perhaps we can change it. Are you finding an awareness movement that is making real changes for people? 
I would like, you know, to leave a message of hope. Mm-hmm. There is things that we can do. We are not doomed. And yes, there is a simple approach that can be can be followed to about to uh, uh, avoid toxins, uh, remove the toxins that we have, and try to, you know, create a healthy lifestyle, which includes also the body-mind connection. Sylvie Beljansky joined us this week to discuss her new book, Winning the War on Cancer, The Epic Journey Towards a Natural Cure. Further details about her beliefs can be found at the Beljansky Foundation website. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Do you ever marvel at how fresh produce arrives at your home from a distant location? Do you find bag salad remarkable in its ability to remain fresh for so long? What is done to food to make its appearance more acceptable? Nicola Temple knows the answers to these questions and many others. She's a biologist, conservatist, and science writer who has taken her interest in the good and bad associated with processed food and written about it in a new book. Best Before, The Evolution and Future of Processed Food. She spoke to us recently about what's happening now to make food last longer and some of the futuristic trends on the horizon. The oldest estimate is is perhaps two million years when the first humans started to pound roots and slice meat and, and potentially even start cooking it. And that, you know, shaped what we look like as humans, in fact, this ability to process food. And, and um, it has most certainly evolved so that it's, you know, the, the technologies that exist exist today sort of start to blur what our understanding of food is, how food, long food can last. You know, a, a freshly cut loaf of bread, for example, probably shouldn't last a week on your countertop. Um, we know that if you've ever baked bread yourself, it's, it starts to go stale in a matter of, of days. So, um, yeah, the, the, the technologies have certainly advanced. <laughs> Most certainly. And even when I'm at my house and I have oranges and, and things, I just I just marvel that they're in my kitchen. So I guess a lot has to be done in um, the, in the background for, for things to get to where they are going in a cost-efficient and, I guess, long-lasting way. So what would surprise us about uh, maybe some of the processing that is done for certain foods to give them some sort of a shelf life? All of the bagged salads, for example, um, you know, when you cut a head of lettuce, you've, you've made one single cut to the to the base of that lettuce. But when you, we love those, the variety of the leaves that come in a, a bag of lettuce, and, and each one of those stems is cut, and so this sort of creates this this um, rapid decay for each of those leaves um, at every cut. And so there's, you know, so the, the bags that they're contained in um, have been, they're, they're, it's called modified atmospheric packaging, and, and, and they've changed the ratio of gases, for example, to try and slow down that decay process. But, you know, things as simple as, as an apple, for example, um, you know, it can be photographed as much as 100 times just to look at the ratio of green to red because some supermarkets would, would prefer a different ratio than others. Um, and, you know, that's 
that's an example of, of really just sort of sorting, but we don't really think of an apple as being processed at all, but even something as simple as that has been has been processed. Well, uh, they, but we know, we think, Nicola, maybe we don't know, but we think that uh, bag salads are they're kind of the new norm because lettuce is such a, a volatile commodity. I mean, we've just seen this E. coli outbreak with the romaine. So, you know, when we see that, we actually feel a degree of safety, even though I can tell when you're in the restaurant that isn't most of it from a bag at this point. Yeah, bagged lettuces have have taken off um, exponentially. I mean, it's it would be any food manufacturer's dream to have sort of the exponential rise in in popularity that bagged lettuce has had. Um, but you know, it, it even two or three de- well. No, so prior to the 1980s, say, the technology wouldn't have existed in order to keep those uh, little leaves all as as fresh as we would like to see them. Um, but it is because we we love the variety that that comes with the bagged lettuce, and 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 there's of course. It's been washed. It's um, been, as I said, it's an atmospheric change. The atmosphere within the packaging has changed to try and slow that decay down. Um, and all of these technologies exist to also try and produce a safer food for everyone as well someone, as the E. coli. Yeah, <laughs> so. I know. It's, uh, you're always taking a, a chance. But someone wants to know if it's possible for someone to develop an allergy because of food processing. Yeah, I mean that has been that's certainly been one of the questions around uh, the gluten intolerance, for example. Um, you see a lot more gluten intolerance in North America than you do here in Europe, um, as an example. And and one of the uh, reasons for that has been proposed that because the bread making process has changed, so it's not fermented for as long. It's sort of all been uh, sped up using enzymes and and um, other methods. Then uh, it's possible that people are are starting to develop an intolerance to gluten that doesn't exist. For example, they might tolerate sourdough, a proper sourdough that's been fermented for you know a, a few days, essentially. Um, so it's possible, but it's also possible. It's also um, some food processing has helped us eliminate some allergies. So it was our, our ability to process milk into cheese that um, started us to the, the trend of becoming um, lactose tolerant. So we're very, very rare among the, the mammals in that we can drink milk into adulthood. So about 35% of the population can drink milk into adulthood. And it was because we were processing milk into cheese that that, that enabled that uh, mutation to happen in our in our genetics. How much of a development has been done so um, things that, that are in the market look attractive to consumers? Because um, you know how it is. You go to the store and maybe you look over the fruit and whatnot, and if it has a blemish, you might not pick it. Or you go over to the, uh, you know, you, you select meat based upon uh, the way that it looks. So what, what's been done in that regard to make things sort of aesthetically pleasing to the consumer? Uh, there's been, yeah, quite a few things. So, um, 
for example, chicken breasts can be plumped up with added water to make them look a bit fuller. Uh, there's been some discussion about meats having dyed added to them in order to make them look fresher. Um, so there are there are definitely cases of the food industry using processing methods to be a bit deceiving. You know, there's there's coatings and dips that you can use to make a, a cut apple uh, look like it was just cut freshly for up to 27 days. And, and for me personally, that's where it crosses the line. Because I think that that's very deceiving. If if you know you sort of have an expectation of how food should behave, and when it doesn't behave that way, it just alters our perception. What do you think what will happen in the future? Well, let's talk about this first. In our culture in the United States, Nicole, there is a lot of waste in uh, the food stream for now. Do you think in the the future there will be less? What kind of things will be done maybe to improve that uh, with consumers and uh, try to get them to understand uh, how severe it is? I think there is a strong movement already happening, and and there's lots of countries around the world, lots of supermarkets have been running, for example, you know, ugly fruit and vegetable campaigns to try and get people to choose the less aesthetically pleasing um, veggies and whatnot. But um, there is still a tremendous amount of waste, and I think that that's one of my great fears, is that processed food has a bit of a bad rap, and some of that is definitely justified. But if we sort of ignore if we don't say have a rational con- conversation about processed food, then there won't be the money to drive innovation to reducing things like food waste. Instead, all of the research and development will be carried out by manufacturers that are more motivated by profit rather than resolving, you know, huge societal problems just like reducing food waste. So that's that is definitely um, something I would like to see happen as a result of this book. Uh, let's talk about the the movement toward organic food, which has its own place in our supermarkets and uh, seems to tout the fact uh, that it is much better for you, although it does come at a price. Will the day come, would you think, when, when that will be um, more accepted, even, even at the price, because people want products that are more natural? Yeah, I think there's. I think there will always have to be a range of uh, price options. And while I think that, in fact, anything that isn't grown organically should be the thing that's labeled um, rather than the organic food, I think that it, we have to be realistic. I mean, sliced ham, for example, there in any supermarket you'll see a range of um, products from you know organically grown uh, grass-reared happy little pigs to, um, you know, the really cheap value ham that's available. And they've the manufacturers are adding more and more water to that product so that they can offer a product that's within a price range that people want. So I don't think that there's ever going to be, you know, organic food will be ubiquitous. There will always be a need for cheaper options. Um, And that's why it's important to have this sort of this rational conversation about processed food and its role in our society. 
Okay, what about uh, GMOs, which uh, there is some backlash against, and uh, that might go with, uh, you know, how they're labeled and how they're made. When In your research, is there anything particularly troubling that you find about uh, GMOs? And I know that's a very large question, but what do you think? <laughs> that is a very large <laughs> question. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of stayed clear of GMOs, to be honest, um, and instead introduced the concept of, of nanotechnology, because I think it runs the risk of going the same direction as GMOs. I think GMOs uh, had some uh, horrible communications around them, and so while not GM- the whole concept of GMOs as a whole is not um, all concerning, there are things, there are areas where we need to take, be precautious. Um, but that doesn't mean we should throw the whole idea out. Um, and I think that's the same with nanotechnology as well. And I think that that's something that we're going to see more and more with relation to our food. Um, you know, looking as an example. So, you know, we're looking for ways to reduce our sugar consumption throughout all of our food chains. And so if we can manufacture sugar that's super small, which is what nanotechnology is, uh, then, you know, we increase the amount of sweetness that we get from far less sugar. So is that is is that um, going to happen into the future? And the, just like GMOs, we need to be cautious about our use of some nanotechnologies and embrace others. Yeah, the the pervasive use of sugar and some, even things that you think are good for you, if you read the content of sugar, they are not. Why do uh, why do manufacturers do this? And and do you think the palate of individuals can be changed in the future so that they don't crave it and and maybe they can scale back on it? Yeah, if if you've ever, I don't know whether you've ever cut sort of tried to reduce the amount of sugar in your diet, but if you do do that for any period of time, you know, you go back and you have a grape or a strawberry and it just tastes intensely sweet. Uh, so there's no denying that your palate can change and you are absolutely right. You know, sugar is ubiquitous and it's because we've made it so, we've become so efficient at processing um, and refining sugar. It's, it's, become, uh, it's become an ingredient rather than just a sweetener or, or an occasion treat so it's used as a tool by the by the food industry um, it's a preservative it enhances flavors it can counter acidity acidity and and some of the other food additives that might have a tartness about them so you know citric acid for example is used as a preservative and then you know they add more sugar in to try and counter that tartness so um, and the, the risk of that is of course you know if you if one manufacturer makes adds a little bit more sugar into their tomato sauce for example, um, then consumers are inherently going to prefer that tomato sauce. And um, so then the other manufacturers will probably up their sugar content um, in response to that. And, you, and suddenly, yeah, all ev- everything becomes a bit sweeter. And I certainly notice that. I'm Canadian and I go back and forth between Canada and Britain. And, and I notice, you know, there's huge differences. So curries are, are much sweeter here than they are in Canada. Canada, for example, but, uh, you know, Strongbow cider is way sweeter in Canada than it is here. That's an interesting thing to bring up. I, I never thought of it that way, that uh, palates uh, based on country may be a bit different. And finally, before we let you go, the future 
the future of, of food um, may be a little bit on the wild side. Some of the thing that things that are out there uh, that you write about are uh, kind of mind-blowing to me. So you want to tell the audience about um, some of the uh, laboratory creations and uh, 3D technology that will come into play? Yeah, so 3D printing, that was... Um you know, something that came out of looking at ways to provide astronauts with fresher food, if you will, looking at 3D printing. And then some restaurants now are incorporating 3D printing, so printing um, chocolate garnish, for example. Uh, you know, you're just putting out a whole bunch of the same thing, and that works really well. But there was a group of MIT students who were really ingenious, and they printed pasta out. Um, we love different-shaped pastas, but, of course, when they're all different shaped, they, um, they take up a lot of packaging. And so they printed out the pasta flat, and then they put another layer, so it became 4D printed, um, of just cellulose, you know, just plant material, in a different pattern on the pasta. And then as soon as you boiled that pasta, they changed their shape as a result of of the way it had been printed. Um, And so it meant they could all be packed flat and use far less packaging than than a pre-shaped pasta. And so I think we're going to see some interest. I mean, that sort of sounds way out there and a bit um, yeah just something out of the pages of a sci-fi novel but who knows I mean there's there's been all sorts of innovations that have happened throughout human history that I'm sure sounded a bit off the wall to begin with. Nicola Temple is a biologist and author. She recently spoke to us about some of the science behind food logistics and what the future may hold while discussing her new book, Best Before, The Evolution and Future of Processed Food. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everything. 